everybody. This is Neil Berkeley, and this is the Berkeley School of Art. Today on the show, we have Dr. John All. Uh, Dr. John All is a research professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences, Huxley College of the Environment, and director of the Mountain Environments Research Institute at Western Washington University. He's also the executive director of the American Climber Science Program, and according to his website, he is a geologist whose life has been devoted to exploration around the world as he examines how climate change and research management interact to impact communities and the biosphere in mountainous regions. His book, Icefall, Adventures in the Wild, Edges of Our Dangerous, Changing Planet, chronicles his many stories over a life filled with adventure, at the center of which is an incredible story about falling down a 70-foot crevasse on Mount Everest and climbing his way to safety. Uh, a Google search on Dr. All will bring up this video. Uh, he had the presence of mind to record, and it is, uh, I would say, harrowing to say the least. Um, today, Dr. All is going to talk to us about that story and many others and what it means to live a life of adventure. This episode's about uh, the art of adventure. Uh, for, for Dr. All, it's not only physically dangerous, but also uh, living and being in a relationship with someone that regularly heads out on deadly trips doesn't make you an easy person to uh, to be with. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, we'll cover all of that. And of course, we'll talk about the research he does uh, while he's on these trips uh, to, uh, to help fight our planet's rapidly changing climate. Um, I've met Dr. All a couple of years ago. He's a really nice guy. I've been to his house in Washington where he lives out in the woods, and he'll tell a story that I was not expecting to hear. Um, but yeah, what he does is basically goes to the most dangerous places on the planet to do research. He climbs mountains and goes into jungles and wades into rivers and fights animals and gets attacked by snakes and elephants uh, and, and, and hyenas. And he does all of this to put snow and water into Ziploc bags and bring it back so people can test it. Um, it's I, I think he definitely loves our planet and wants to do his part to fight climate change, but he really loves adventure. Like He really loves being cold. He loves being on the top of a mountain in thin air. He loves to, he, he, he risks it all. He likes to live on the edge like that. Um, and I'm sure the COVID time being stuck at home has been a nightmare for him. Um, but he'll get back out there and the stories he tells, you know, he's like, uh, this Hemingway-esque character who just goes out and does it. Um, he, listening to him, talking to him, it really makes you want to climb a mountain. Um, I'm pretty accident prone. So anyone listening to this that knows me. Uh, probably knows that I shouldn't be climbing mountains. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, Dr. John All, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Um, so here he is, Dr. John All, climate scientist and adventurer. Well, good to, good to see you again. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. As you know, I'm uh, fascinated by your story. So it's exciting to hear. I've heard, I've heard you tell these stories. Bar and tell me your day job and then tell me your night job or your weekend job <laughs> or your, your adventure, adventure job. job well i got a few jobs i guess so i'm john all um and i mean right now my day job is i work for the uh 
public defender's office here in Bellingham. Yeah. And um, my night job is I'm the uh, regional chair for the Explorers Club, and um, I'm the executive director of the American Climber Science Program. And with COVID, we're not really doing much in terms of expeditions, but uh, really excited about uh, when things open back up, we can get back out there. So um, you are, you're Dr. John All, you're kind of known uh, uh, on the internet anyway as the Indiana Jones of climate science. I don't know how you feel about that. Does that, does that make you blush? Does that being tech, the Indiana oh, Jones? Yeah. And I'll explain why. Well, it's just weird. I don't know. It's... Um, everything it, it, um, so you're known as indiana jones because you're a you're still a professor uh, uh you're a college professor but you are also an adventurer who climbs to the top of, of mountains who goes to the jungles who goes into the the scariest most dangerous treacherous places on earth to gather water and other material for climate climate science, science right yeah and that's what i look forward to when COVID's over and we can start doing these things again at the university. Um, that's been the weird thing uh, working as a lawyer because I mean, you know, students can't do field courses and we can't take lead expeditions and we can't do all these things that we've done for so long. And um, yeah, it um, I've definitely led a lot of really fun expeditions and I think uh, we've got some exciting ones planned for the future and just waiting with bated breath. Yeah. So, when they, when they say you say you go to the tops of mountains, explain what that means and why that's important. Because te- basically, you're going up there to gather snow, um, and wh- why you have to go to these places. And uh, I know that's not you have a couple goals here. You have a couple goal. One one goal is to um, gather the data for climate science, but you're also uh, an adventurer, which might be your your true love. Um, but a lot of people gather this data, gather material. You go to the tops of Mount Everest uh, and other high mountains um why is that important and why is that unique well it's because people don't go those other to these places um lots of people collect data in iowa and then um you know the easy to reach places i mean we've got a plethora of data for these areas but at the same time that's not really where climate changes environmental changes are uh, affecting the planet uh, if you want to find out how where change is occurring, you have to go to the places that are kind of the most vulnerable and the most delicate. And um, it's it's weird to think about the top of a mountain being delicate, but it is. It's a frozen ecosystem that's disappearing with climate change. And we see it disappearing every time the uh, glaciers collapse and um, you know create a massive flood or kill a bunch of climbers and so forth. So, um, and yeah, I've been a climber for most of my life and uh, been in search and rescue and led expeditions. And so it's really wonderful to be able to get out in these remote places and collect data that we need to understand climate change while also, you know, kind of uh, being able to have adventures at the same time. Well, I think that way. If if people Google you, Dr. John, all they're going to be immediately faced with a video of you. That's about three minutes and 10 seconds long. Is that the whole video? Is there more material? Than that thing. Um, that's the only thing that I think I tried to take a couple more, but amazingly enough, when you're uh, 
bleeding to death and uh, have a lot of broken bones, you're not the best cameraman. So I was happy I got what I did. <laughs> Let me explain what they're going to see. They're going to see you uh, with much uh, with really long hair, really cool long hair, but uh, it's covered and matted in blood. Your teeth look smashed. They're also covered in blood. You're breathing. Um, I've broken ribs. Uh, if anyone's ever broken ribs, that feeling of you're not breathing, you're actually just letting air fall out of your body. Um, the sound of your voice is so familiar because I've, I have broken ribs. You were on Mount Everest on one of these climbs. Um, and it was early in the morning and you were by yourself and you were getting coffee or making coffee and you fell down a 70 foot crevasse. And I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> well, it was one of those weird things where it was, you know, the reason I was alone is because one of our team members was ill and had to go down. And so I knew I had a couple days to wait for her to recover and come back up. And so I wasn't in a hurry. It was, it's rare on a mountain to just be totally relaxed. And all I had to do was gather some snow so that I could make coffee, make breakfast and uh, begin processing the samples. Um, and it was one of those things where it was just a beautiful, amazing day. Um, you know, I could see hundreds of miles across the Himalaya and, you know, you're just out there appreciating what an amazing, amazing uh, experience you're having. And then suddenly it's pitch black. I'm smashing into walls back and forth as I uh, feel this vertigo in my stomach. I know what's happening uh, as a climber. That's what that's the feeling you always fear fear to have is that well I'm falling and uh, you know I you know what it is and know that it can't end well. But thankfully it did. I you know suddenly was in agony and um, at least if I'm in agony I am still alive and uh, was able to start moving a little bit and in the video, you'd quickly do an assessment of what you have and what's going on. And you point the camera up and you see that little speck of blue sky and it clearly looks high. It's 70 feet above you. But then you say, at least I didn't land down there. How far below you? So you fell 70 feet and you landed on a ledge, I guess. How far below you was, was down, down there? there? I was maybe a third of the way. And that was just as far as I could see. Um, I didn't have any kind of light, and so the sunlight just sort of filtered down. And by the time it got, you know, another 150 feet below me, it just went to darkness. And so um, it was the void, uh, literally. So, so let's go through quickly. The, uh, you you do a good assessment, like I said, of, of where you are physically. Uh, give me a list of what you physically your uh, the damage you had done falling 70 feet down a crevasse. Well, the first thing was on the way down. My plan had always been if I start to fall, I was going to self-arrest. And so I threw my arm out to self-arrest, but you can't stop a free-falling body with an arm. Um, so it pulled up and it ripped, broke the all the bones in my shoulder, my scapula, my clavicle, my humerus, ripped all the tendons out, dislocated the shoulder. Um, and so basically just left that arm just a piece of meat with nothing I could much do with it. Um, then in the, my body, I had broken six ribs and also had broken six vertebrae. So six ribs in the front and six vertebrae in the back. And, um, then I was bleeding internally. I had blood all over my face. I had smashed my one knee. Um, but I was lucky cause my feet still worked. And that's at the end of the day, whenever you're faced with something like this, it's those little things. It's the things that do work that allow you to keep moving. And, you know, I, my left arm was working pretty well. I had uh, actually dislocated it and separated it years ago playing rugby. And uh, 
had always meant to get surgery. So it was my bad shoulder until suddenly it was the one I was depending on to keep me alive. And your, your nose was broken or your teeth, you, your face is definitely clearly bloody and damaged. Well, so it basically just smashed my face along and scraped it on the glacier. And um, yeah, now I've got a little piece of skin in the wrong place on my nose. And if you get too close, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of looks different than it did. But uh, thankfully, yeah, it didn't break my nose. That would have been another terrible, painful thing to deal with. But one of the biggest issues was because I had the broken ribs and I'm at 20,000 feet and you can barely breathe even sitting, much less if you're trying to do something where you got a lot of physical exertion. So, you know, I'm trying to just breathe as hard as like an Olympic sprinter is breathing while at the same time I have six broken ribs and six broken vertebrae. So neither side is working very well. And so that just, that was the uh, kind of, worst of the ordeal was just getting enough oxygen throughout the uh, hours. That's really, it blows me away. It's because I've also ripped my shoulder apart and I've broken ribs and I've broken a lot of bones, unfortunately, but it's the ribs. Like whenever I hear about quarterbacks in the NFL playing with broken ribs, it blows my mind because yeah, breathing, expanding your chest, uh, a, a a millimeter is painful, but, and so you're, 70 feet below and the video is fascinating to me because of a couple things you don't do is you you don't panic you seem very you're injured and you're hurt you don't seem scared you seem very calm you you're you definitely are clear about the the situation you're in and but you quickly start analyzing how you're going to get out of there were you ever you don't seem to have a fear of death in you in the video well and that was two things. First of all, experience, um, having done a lot of search and rescue, having climbed forever. I mean, that's the thing you learn about climbing or doing things that scare you, uh, especially climbing. Is it to look anytime you're rock climbing or ice climbing, you, a lot of times you get scared. And if you get scared, your arms start shaking and you fall and you get hurt. And so over and over again, the more you climb, the more it uh, gives you that space to where you can just quell fear. And in this case, because I had that background, uh, my subconscious just slammed down my emotional response. And it probably took me six months to begin really experiencing things again, because you know, your subconscious just knows if I had panicked, I would have died. There was no question. The second I just stopped and started thinking about what was going to happen if I didn't make it out, um, you know, that, and I wouldn't have made it out. It's kind of totally a self-fulfilling uh, thing. And you just, so my mindset subconsciously from the beginning was, well, I'm, I'm getting out clearly. So what are the steps necessary to do that? But you had no water, no food. You had nothing down there. Yeah, I had nothing. But again, it's just one of those, those things like that just fall apart, fall aside, you know, it's, you know, water doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. The only thing that mattered was kicking my feet into the uh, ice, moving my arm on the ice. Everything else has just became extraneous. And the diamond focus, it's just so hard to explain to people how your mind took over. And so how did you actually, you climbed out with one hand, basically? Yeah, no, it was terrible because this arm, like I said, I couldn't move or do anything with. So thankfully, when I had fallen, the even though I tried to self-arrest and it didn't work, the ax had fallen with me and I'd landed on top of it. 
and didn't impale myself, which is another lucky thing. And then I had the other axe in my hand still. So I had two axes. So what I would, was able to do is, so when I was facing the wall and to my left, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, it's 20, 30, 40 feet wide as it kind of went that way. And there was nothing I could do. But to this side, it got narrower and narrower. And where I was at at first, it was probably six foot wide. And so I'm not going to be able to do anything with that. But I saw where it got, you know, down to a you know a couple feet. And I knew I could put one, uh, my back on one wall and my feet on the other wall. And even without an arm, chimney my way up, hopefully. And so I had to climb to my right, but unfortunately, um, that was also if I didn't have a working right shoulder. So what I had to do was I would take an ice axe and reach as far as I could and uh, put it in the ice and then kick my feet and pull myself over until I was hanging on it. Then I would lean into it and then I would let go and reach and grab the other one and reach across my body and stick it in. And then move myself across. Slow process. How long did it take you to get out of there? So four to six hours. I mean, it was one of those things where I went in at probably nine and hours altogether. And so it was that that wasn't constant climbing. That was long breaks, I assume. No, I, it was like a meat locker in there. I mean, it was cold, deep, every breath froze my lungs. And so there was no, if I'd stopped, my hand was like the ice was forming on the gloves the whole time because I just had on uh, windproof fleece gloves. And so if I had stopped even for five minutes, I would have died. So at this point, what, what is, what is your pain level? You know, when you're the doctor, they say one to 10, what's your pain level? Are you, is it screaming pain or did your body take care of that? Well, so the doctor, when I was talking to uh, doctors afterwards, they basically, you know, they always use this one to 10 scale <coughs> and the one to 10 scale for everybody is different, you know, based upon what the worst pain you've ever had is. And so they helped me calibrate it. They say basically giving birth on my scale is about an eight. And so it's uh you know, just way off the thing. But it, yeah, it was one of those deals where it's just, it's so bad that your mind just can't cope with it. And it just, basically that was just like this, it's like you're in a crowd and the crowd is shouting. The pain was shouting at my brain the whole time, but my brain's just like, no, I'm putting this cramp on here. I'm putting that ax there. And the whole time there's that pain just, focus on it were your muscles seizing around those broken bones um yeah i mean i as it goes on i have a harder and harder time caught uh talking and at least part of that was because the my chest was filling with blood and it was just making it even worse but the um um yeah that my arm it was one of those deals where the pain just was growing worse and worse and worse and um yeah, it was terrible. And you were on Facebook, right? You were sending Facebook messages to family? Well, no, no. I'm in a crevasse. There's no signal. I didn't. I couldn't do that until I got all the way back to the tent. Okay. So that was the deal. It's like there was no rescue. I'm completely dead, and they never find my body unless I get out. Right. 
So, um, because it had just snowed and the monsoon was coming. And by the time of, if they'd been able to get a rescue up there, which they probably wouldn't have, everything would have been buried in snow. There'd have been no way to know where I'd gone. And, uh, yeah, it, that never would have found, found my body. So you did get out. And it, of course, these stories always have something comical. You drug yourself away from where they thought you would be. Is that right? Is that right? Well, I mean, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but basically the uh, rescue company that was coordinating my rescue, they just weren't listening. I explained I was in the tent. I couldn't move. They had to pick me up at the tent. Everybody I talked to understood that. And then the helicopter pilot shows up and he, uh, he flies around and I'm like, what is he doing? He flies over to the crevasse. He flies around the whole thing. He's like, well, I, I didn't see anybody. And so I got ready to leave and I thought, well, we'll just check the tent because he had been told I was still in the crevasse. And I'm like, no one thought that where, who told him that? <laughs> so so you, clearly it's one of those things. I think it's, you know, you pass on a message enough times and it gets changed from, he fell into a crevasse and crawled to a tent to he's still in the crevasse, you know, 26 hours later. And somehow he's alive. alive. Well, that's the exciting part. It's less exciting for you to be found in a tent. They want to find you in a crevasse and save you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so you, you drug yourself back to the tent, you posted on Facebook and they, they came to get you. And then didn't they, there's the part of the story where they jerk you out of the tent to throw you onto the, the helicopter. helicopter. Well, you know, I'm six, five and probably 240, 250 pounds. And the guy who came to check the tent was a Sherpa, you know? And so he's like five, two and 130 pounds. And so there's no way he's carrying me. And the helicopter pilot is keeping the, you know, the, the, it, this is the maximum elevation they can fly. They had taken all the doors off, all the seats out. Basically, the chapter was entirely empty, and he was just hovering, trying to keep it from blowing away. So the Sherpa had to get me to the helicopter because I couldn't move. And uh, so, yeah, he grabbed the uh, sleeping pad that I was kind of laying on and just dragged that like a toboggan. Unfortunately, it was an icy, broken snow. So the whole time I'm bouncing and all my broken bones are just going, ow, 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 ow. <laughs> the internal bleeding's getting worse. But I was like, well, I'm making it to the helicopter and that's all that matters. So I love having you make this list. Um, you've been an adventurer for a long time. And we're going to talk about what that word means and what that means to you because that's what I'm really curious about. But so make the list of your other brushes with death and danger over the years. The <laughs> Jeez, that's a long list. We better have a couple hours here. <laughs> but you know what's funny is I actually, um, was it yesterday? Last night, 24 hours ago, I was about as close as I've been since the crevasse, which is mind boggling to me. What happened? I went out. I was a sea kayaking. And it was a cold winter day, but the sun had come out, all the clouds had, you know, had calmed down. So I get out there and I'm, I'm good ways off the uh, offshore. And then kind of out of nowhere, some six foot waves and this 30 mile an hour wind just blows up and uh, it puts me in the water. <coughs> um, my boat gets separated. So I'm in 40 degree water and um, there, you know, no boat. and so there was a, uh, basically a rock that was, it took me about 45 minutes to swim. And so I swam to that rock. I get to the rock and it's starting to get dark. And it's one of those deals where, you know, 40 degree water, you got about 
30 minutes of life. And it took me 45 minutes to get to the rock. I get to the rock. It's starting to get dark. The wind is just howling at this point. And I know I'm going to get hypothermic. There's a bunch of bat, uh, bird guano on the rock because it was a bird par- uh, sanctuary. So I'm like, well, maybe I could get under the bird guano to stay warm, but otherwise I'm going to freeze to death, go hypothermic. So I have to get back into the water and swim another 45 minutes to make it to the mainland. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that it was exactly like a crevasse. You know, either you start moving, don't panic, don't think about anything else other than moving, or you die. You never no I can't believe that it just happened last night. It still is blowing my mind because – I mean, it was one of those things where it was a beautiful day. You know, I'm looking out. The sun's kind of getting towards setting. There's kind of wispy clouds off in the distance, and everything was wonderful. And then suddenly, you know, you're you – know, and it'd be one of those things in the newspaper, you know, the man dies in kayak accident. You see them all the time, but until you're in one of them, you're like, whoa, this is – life is crazy. Man, so this this wasn't you didn't do it just for some bonus content on the podcast today. <laughs> I I not heard that story. Don't do that. Don't uh don't, I guess you're always going to be in danger, but uh be careful, man. But you know but yeah, you've made this list for me before. The other things that have happened, animals you bumped into, people you've come across. Yeah, I mean, I've so I've stepped on a black mamba um and we had just seen a black mamba, so I knew exactly what it was when I felt it like sliming up my leg. But thankfully, I kicked because whenever something just slides up your leg, you just come up to strike. You know, that's your gag reflex or whatever. Um, I've also, um, we've almost, we had a, uh, a uh, fair de lance in Costa Rica that we, somebody clipped the um, uh, brush away from and exposed him. And he's like six foot long. And there's three of us in a circle surrounding this fair de lance. That's a snake. Goes, but yeah, oh, it's so the three deadliest snakes in the world. Well, three of the more deadly snakes in the world: the black mamba, fair to lance, and uh, also the bushmaster. Same thing. I was hiking in the jungle and uh, saw a bushmaster, and um, so yeah, I've had my snake encounters. I uh, I've had nine people point guns at me. Um, one of them pulled the trigger, tried to shoot, but uh, he screwed it up. It was just some kid with a semi-auto down in Florida. And um, he like ejects the shell after he pulls the trigger. And so, and, and it's a bullet, you know, so it just was a misfire or something. And he and I both look at the bullet on the floor and it was, he was just like, he just reaches down and grabs the bullet and backs off and walks away, you know? And I was like, thank God. Um, but in another time in a marijuana plantation, I mean, I've had, <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's drug funny drug how we drug more drug, right? sort of, being there so those were drug dealers you wandered onto a drug plantation yeah it was before marijuana was legal so back when i was in uh just coming out of undergrad basically and down in mexico and it was one of those deals where we had been doing tree ring coring on the uh, sierra madre and on the way back it was like a (coughs) a uh like a 12 hour drive or maybe a six hour hike just down the valley. Cause the drive, you had to go all super long way around and through the rivers and stuff. And uh, so we made the guy whose project it was drive and the other two of us walked and yeah, suddenly we're walking, you know, we're walking through forest. It's beautiful along the river out in the middle of nowhere, nobody around except for the uh, native Americans. And then suddenly there's a marijuana plant. 
oh, there's another one. The further down the valley we went, and then we began seeing fields and sprayers. And I mean, it was a big, <coughs> um, a big operation. And uh, finally, we see a gun barrel pointing around a tree. And um, we're just like, hey, hey, no, we're just out hiking. Don't mind, don't mind us. And uh, it was, yeah, the guy was had no teeth. He was old and uh, you could tell he was just like, what are these two gringos doing out here in the middle of nowhere? They probably don't. Nowadays stuff like that's more common. People are just like, Oh, I want to get away from it all. But um, back when I was uh, the rare thing. And, and the hyenas and lions, it it, the list goes on, right? right? Oh yeah. Then when we get to Africa, um, I mean the hyena tearing off my shoe as I'm diving into the pickup truck is bad. Um, but we were several times chased by elephants and they're like, you don't like elephants and screaming. And, um, I've got the truck in reverse as fast as I can go. And, um, yeah, no, the elephants there because they get hunted. And so they recognize humans are their predators. And so they're predators against humans. Yeah. You've told me your feelings about elephants. (laughs) Oh yeah. No. Well, in my, ex-wife that I was there at the time and she just hates them and we went and we went to India and they were elephants everywhere you know and they're domesticated and everything and she just still couldn't get anywhere near them you know they're um well we had two of the guys who when we went out and were gathering data we always had to have uh, guys with AK-47s go with us into the field African uh, in uh, Africa and the two African game guards are with us we were gone for a week and we came back and they'd both been killed Oh my God. Uh, they were shooting the elephants while the elephants were tearing them to pieces. So, um, wow. yeah, so yeah, it was a tough place. So let's talk about adventure. <laughs> uh, you, 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 you've shaped your career around getting to adventure and adventuring. What does that, what does that word mean to you? And what, what is it that, that drives you? Cause you've, you've given up relationships to adventure. You've, you've made some sacrifices and given up things to do this. And we'll talk about that, but, but what does that word mean? And why does, why is it such a motivator for you? Well, see, and I don't even know that I would, I guess I would use the word adventure, but to me, it's, it's just living life to the fullest. You know, there's so many things to do in life and sitting around watching football or all these other things. I mean, you watch a few football games and I'm done, you know, but getting out there and learning how to paraglide or how to um, ice climb. And you know, there's so many wonderful things to do in the world. And people are like, well, that's all adventure. You know, you're out there doing things that most of us don't do, but to me, it's just living life and getting a, a taste for all the incredible things there are available for us to do. And is it, is it being close to death or is it just experiencing things? Well, just the opposite. I hate death. I mean, it's like search and rescue. And that's the funny thing. When I started working for this, uh, doing this law job, they were like, oh, you're a mountain climber. I bet you're going to be really risky and take everything to trial, aren't you? And I was like, it's just the opposite. The reason I'm alive is because I prepare and I don't take risks. I minimize everything I can possibly do, but I'm, am in a dangerous situation. But of course, everyone else is when they drive to work every day. I mean, more likely I've been hurt by a car accident way worse than anything I've ever experienced. Really? So tell me, so the opportunity to combine uh, climate science and being a professor and getting to go do this, when did that uh, come at you? Cause you were a teacher and when did it, when did you realize I could, I could get these people to pay for me to go climb these mountains and help the world. Well, so I originally did most of my work in um, Mexico, Northern Mexico. Yeah. 
And um, students definitely don't want to go to northern Mexico in the rural areas, especially now with all the narco traficantes everywhere. But um, when it was, was when I went to, uh, I got a Fulbright uh, to spend a year in Nepal. And I was going to be able to take Nepali students, graduate students, out into the field for a year. And I had done a little bit of it back in the States, but I had never really, it just, it didn't seem possible to do the things I loved and have the real job, you know, because all the other scientists I've seen, there's a bunch of climbers who are good scientists, but they're all like physicists and all these like, you know, kind of esoteric scientists. And there's a bunch of great uh, climbers who don't know anything about science. And the fact that I was interested in kind of the environment and the things that we can learn on the mountains and the climbing, like I said, it just, it never came together until I got that Fulbright and was in Nepal. And suddenly I saw all the opportunities and I took those Nepali students out there and uh, realized, you know, American students would just love to do this. And so then I got back and began small steps. I went back and began taking students kind of around um, different parts of the state and then um, set up a trip to do it, to do out in the West Coast. Um, but I realized, you know, the big step was going to be taking them to Nepal, taking them to Peru and these other places. And um, that's when I eventually moved to uh, Washington to allow me a little more flexibility to really begin doing that. And what are you actually doing up there? You would say you're putting snow in Ziploc bags, but beyond that, what, what's the goal when you get to the, to the heights? Well, so in terms of the mountains, it, it's not just the peak. The key is the journey, just like in life. <laughs> the key is the journey. <laughs> there you go. And so with mountain climbing, you have to acclimatize. So you have to go to base camp, spend some time, make sure you're getting your blood, make sure you're fit. Um, and then you move up in elevation to the high camp and then you move up to the summit. And so what we do, the, the thing that really has allowed me to kind of make the biggest difference is at each location, I collect different things. So at the lower elevations, they're taking water quality samples. I'm looking at how grazing and uh, wildlife are affected by climate change. Then as we move up a little bit, we've been looking at things like geology. How's the geology affecting landslides and water quality and so forth. And then as we get up to the summits, collecting the snow the great thing about snow is it's it absorbs things it's kind of like if you leave a water a glass of water in your living room it gets covered by dust well snow does the same thing it collects dust as the wind is kind of blown over and the great thing about somewhere like the himalayas is you have wind coming from china on part of it and you have wind coming from india on the other part and so it allows you it basically is a year-long collective dish that lets you see what dust has come from China over the past year, what dust has come, what is moving around the world. And so it really allows us to learn a lot of different things about um, both how dust and pollution from different places is affecting the world, but then also what it means for the glaciers of these high mountains, how much dust is accumulating and how radiatively active is it? Because some dust reflects light, like a light tan colored dust, just to use colors. Um, whereas something like a coal is going to greatly absorb energy. And so it's going to melt the snow a lot faster. And again, you know, 2 billion people rely on the water that comes out of the Himalayas. You start melting that snow faster. You start uh, making that source of water disappear. And you got a lot of people who are uh, 
really hurting. So well, a familiar example might be the uh, people who live in California. That ash from yep. the fires is traveling to those mountains. Yeah, exactly. And that's it, this exact same study and um, techniques that we've developed kind of around the world. They're using more and more in the Sierra Nevada. And um, the thing with Sierra Nevada is because there's no glaciers. And so it's very transient. And that was the difference between what we've been doing with the climate science program and what older uh, studies like Lonnie Thompson at Ohio State did with ice cores. So they looked at, you know, a 300 year or a thousand or 10,000 year record with an ice core. What we've always done is sampled the snow. So just looked at this year and last year or, you know, just a kind of a more recent uh, timeline. And those techniques work really well in the Sierra because, you know, that snow only lingers a year or two. So so all of these stories are, are, are really well told and you have a book called Icefall. Um, it's really great. It tells your whole story and using that crevasse uh, incident as the back, as the spine of it. But the thing that I was really impressed that I, you know, I'm, I make documentary films, so I always tend to lean towards the really human parts. You are very clear and very honest about relationships. And I think there's a couple stories of an opportunity to go climb a mountain and the woman you were with said, it's the mountain or me. And you made a choice. Can you, do you mind talking about that a little bit? Well, it's, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, if it's come to the point where it's the mountain or me, um, then there's, you know, you've reached, you know, it, it's the tip of the iceberg or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's certainly with my second wife, especially and it. You know, she loved Africa and the time we spent in Africa she she still works in Africa. That Africa was where she wanted to, to be. She liked being warm. I liked being cold and liked climbing the mountains. And so when I decided to climb Everest, uh, my second wife said, well, I don't want to climb Everest. I'm, it's, I'm, you know, we hadn't had a hot shower and uh, I forget what it was. We ended up, it was like almost five months. Wow. And just that constant bone chilling cold, I mean, people don't realize how undeveloped Nepal at least was uh, back 10 years ago. Um, you know, it was one of the bottom, like least developed on earth. It was at about the same uh, GDP as Haiti, um, you know, with the AIDS epidemics and the earthquakes and everything else that happened in Haiti. Nepal was about the same. It's uh, less than $100 a year uh, was the average wage that people made um, back then. And so, that sort of just always being cold, never having heat, uh, living in the mountains, she just couldn't, couldn't take anymore. And it was one of those things where it's, you know, do I change my life? Does she change her life? Or do we realize that even if we love each other, you know, it's a different, you know, you can still love someone and realize that the relationship isn't going to be, you know, last forever. So. And it sounds like she lived a pretty adventurous life. It must be hard for people to be in relationships with people. Like if the one person's not doing that to just sit and wait for them to get back from this really dangerous trip they're going on. Yeah. And that's always been, I've never appreciated that as much. Um, but I probably should have because my, like my first wife loved horses. And so we thought, well, if we have a nice horse farm, she can be there with the horses while I'm, um, out traveling and doing these things and I won't be gone that long. Um, but of course it, it, it's, it's hard to be away from your partner for a long period of time. And, um, again, it's one of those things where, you know, one of you either has to sacrifice or you have to realize that it, 
just isn't meant to be and uh, uh, try and figure out a way to make it work next time. So, Yeah. And that, that is one thing that I, I do notice in the video is that you don't do what people would expect you to do, which is say your goodbyes and I love yous to people. You're very focused on getting out of there, but you told me uh, separately in, in the book, you talk about it, that you did have a thought to your mother that was really sort of what. Yeah. And that was um, basically at kind of the lowest of the low points um, I had gone because I was climbing across these voids, but there were uh, blocks of ice that were wedged in the crevasse. And I was kind of moving from block to block up to the up uh, slope. And I had this one point where the blocks were really far apart. And so I had just been, and you know, one slip, even just the tiniest slip and you know, I'm falling 300 feet. And so I was exhausted and my body was just pounded. And I could see that once I got to the far side, things would start to ease up a little bit. And it just, I was uh, so utterly exhausted. And I just remember looking down and seeing the sinuous walls and thinking, you know, if I just quit, I'm just going to slide down those and just be gone forever. And that was when, it's funny, it's like my subconscious just kind of gave me a kick and said, you know, man, if you do that and end up down there and they never find your body, your mom is going to be devastated. You know, there's just no way she can handle that in any way. And she shouldn't have to, you know, I, I can't do that to her. That's not fair to ask somebody to, to deal with that. So that, you know, was kind of the kick that I really needed to start, you know, took the deep breath, sucked it up and kept going, put the next ax in and kept going. Um, and so it, and it's funny, I never really thought about it that way until just now while we're talking, but I do kind of feel like it moves by a subconscious. It's kind of giving me a little kick. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you mentioned it in the book and it really struck me, especially where it is. It, it is like the, the, a classic storytelling. It is in the low point. It is where you're like, you know, oh, yeah. you're going to go up or down or stay here forever. Well, because uh, I told you, if I had been dwelling on that and like saying my goodbyes yeah. before I started climbing or during the climb, yeah, it just would have, it would have messed up the concentration. I would not have gotten out. So who are the kinds of people that are going? You talk about taking people up on these adventures. Who are you bringing up there with you? Students? Well, first of all, I'm not, yeah, places like that. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, like Everest, I've pretty much only taken people who are super experienced climbers and strong. And, uh, you know, like when I've taken expeditions in the jungles of uh, Panama, for example, it's, you know, Navy SEALs and uh, professional ice climbers. Um, those few types of incredibly extreme expeditions, it's, you know, the best people in the world that I can find. Um, but then I also do a lot of trips to Peru where it is more laid back, you know, we're kind of just walking up peaks and we need lots of people to help collect data and, uh, carry samples. And, um, what we find is a lot of people who are interested in rock climbing or interested in, um, helping out with the environment who want to learn to you know, do alpine, you know, fairly straightforward alpine climbs. And so it's great because, you know, we've got the knowledge. I can train everybody in how to climb safely and they can help us do the science and we can bring scientists and students and uh, faculty from Peru, from Nepal, and lots of them from the United States as well. Um, so it's a great mixing of uh, different types of talented individuals uh, coming together to, to kind of make a difference in the scientific arena. 
And there's a, there must be a lot of training because uh, you teaching them how to do it because you have been up there when not just your own experience, what happened to you, but you've been up there with when some really devastating things happened to other people. Well, on the, in the, on Everest for sure. It, um, the, um, yeah, I mean, one of my two guys was killed and, uh, you know, 16 people died, uh, in the ice fall in 2014. Um, but that's, you know, there were dozens of people on scene who were <laughs> probably a lot more qualified than I was. So I've been lucky in when, um, the really terrible things have occurred. I've been with really strong groups. And so, um, yeah, it's, I've been in Peru. We don't mess around. We keep it safe. And, uh, kind of the worst thing that I've had happen in Peru was a bull charging us and I had to grab him by the horns and wrestle him to the ground and sort of kept fighting him off until I could get an ice axe and start whacking him and get him to go the other way. Um, thankfully we, we haven't had any kind of avalanches. We don't climb avalanche terrain and we don't, yeah, we just don't mess around in uh, places like that where, you know, cause if you're teaching people, if you're training them to extremes, that, that bull that story is also on that list of you and people. Never been attacked by a bull. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not fun. I'll, uh, we'll say that. <laughs> um, but so going to the top of a mountain. Um, what, what? You're a spiritual person. You're a Buddhist, right? You, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Most everyone I know who does a lot of climbing in Nepal okay. becomes a Buddhist. It just the feel of those mountains makes you appreciate the world in a different way. So. What, what is, what, explain that to me, what that is. And, and does it have something to do with being that close to nature, being on top of a mountain, seeing all of God's earth and what? Well, that and just the scale, everything is so much bigger than you are. Okay. Um, you know, in town and, you know, trees and stuff, it's all human scale. If you're in the landscape in Georgia and I mean, occasionally you go to Yosemite and it's big, but it isn't Himalayan big. Right. <coughs> So, but, but, so put me on top of a mountain. What is that on top of Everest? What is that? What is that like? It, it, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's so hard to describe with words because I mean, you've got the adrenaline rush, you've got the endorphins kicking in and you are, you've succeeded on something that you've spent months and years training at. And a lot of people don't, I mean, you know, we succeed in little things, but Rarely do we really put ourselves out there and say, all right, I want this. I'm going to spend two years of my life preparing for it and then see if I get it. Most people don't commit themselves to that kind of a thing. And so they don't, because they don't make the commitment, they don't get that reward of achieving it in the, in the end. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, your, your body's excited, your mind's excited because you've achieved it. And then, like you said, the, the size and the scale just, seeing the world laid out at your feet. Um, and when you're on top of Everest, it's, you know, space station type, um, you know, flying on it on a satellite uh, type of view. I mean, it's so far beyond what humans can appreciate that there's no way not to feel um, the, the sacred all around you. And then there are the people that get within feet of it, right? And can't continue. Aren't there people that get just so dramatically close and just can't go on? 
Well, and they're, they're being smart because the, the people who are getting close and turning around are the ones who, um, you know, are likely to die. And those ones who take the little extra bit um, are the ones that a lot of times don't come back. And so, um, and that's the problem with what ifs. It's, you know, what if that person who died had turned around 15 minutes earlier? Or would have been, did he need to turn around an hour earlier? Was it two hours earlier? You don't know where he could have turned around and lived. And the same thing when someone turns around and, and does live, right. how much further could they have really gone? Could they have gone 15 more minutes yeah. or would the storm have come in or would they have had a heart attack or whatever? So um, yeah, that knowing when to turn around is one of the hardest, hardest things there is, especially when it's the day, you know, the weather's not the thing turning you around when it's just, you know, I got to, I got to turn around. But how, so how close do people get and have to turn around? Well, so the, the other thing about something like Everest is there's a series of obstacles. And so it's one of those things to where you get to where you're within, you know, 100 meters of the top or 200 meters of the top, um, which, you know, is incredibly close. But at the same time, well, that's that little diamond wall and that's the zigzag step. And it's it's a lot harder than just a hundred meters of vertical. So um, it really is to how many obstacles did they um, have to pass? And to be honest, it's not the climbing. It's always the descent. 90% of people are, who die, die on the descent. Oh. And so it's, it's a lot easier to climb up something super steep than it is to get down it. Um, and so, especially if you get up there, you start feeling bad. Um, well, like for the example, the year I climbed the, from the Tibet side, 2010, um, there was a super nice guy. He gets to the summit and, um, yeah, he was from Scotland. He was talking about, you know, telling us about the party we were all going to have when we got back and everything. He gets to the summit and he starts going blind and, um, you know, they're, his team's trying to get him down and he's getting worse and worse and he just can't see. And so even though it's just the descent and so you're not straining, it still requires so much more technical um, expertise. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, they're trying to help him down. He's trying to down climb in without being able to see everyone starts getting frostbite. And eventually it's like, Oh, you guys have to go without me. You will all die. And so he just sat down and they had to leave him. Um, and that, it's the descent that is deceptive. And so that's why people who turn around, you know, hundred meters from the top, they're turning around because they don't want to have to deal with those two cliffs between actually descending them. They had, and, to, um, they had to just turn and walk away from him. Yeah. Wow. wow. You know, it was getting dark. They were, everyone was starting to get frostbite. They can't, you know, they just, they didn't have any choice. It's one. Because you had your own uh, issue coming on a descent also. You had to slide down, right? Well, I got really dehydrated. It was one of those things where um, I got back to our camp three, and um, one of the kind of dirty little secrets of Everest is that at the high camps, uh, a lot of times stuff gets stolen. And, um, you know, because you think about it, it's an extremely valuable bottle of oxygen or fuel canister that someone is carried on a yak to base camp and then all the way up to over 8,000 to 8,000 meters. 
And, um, you know, that's, that's life or death for people. And when they really need it, they're just going to go and take it no matter how much you're depending on it. So yeah, I got back to camp three and we didn't have any fuel left. Um, there was a empty stove. And so, um, I had to descend with no water and, um, that, yeah, it's amazing how you you can go for a long, long time, ignoring hunger, ignoring food or anything. But after about 24 hours with no water, I mean, your blood just starts getting thick. And, um, you know, I was eating snow and doing everything else I can't, could, but, um, you know, that's, you know, water, you got to dry environment. So you slid down, right? Didn't you toboggan down? Yeah. So, well, so from kind of, uh, the high camp, I guess, camp two to camp one, it, um, it's just a fair, it's kind of like a black diamond ski slope. It's the only real snow that's on that upper portion of the uh, route. And uh, I'd read back in the twenties that when Mallory and those guys were there, one guy had been super exhausted and he was like stumbling, trying, how can I get down? And he had just glissaded. So just, which means sit on your butt and uh, get your ice axe. And if you start going too fast, put the ice axe in to slow down. And so, yeah, I mean, it was snowing super hard. The storm had moved in. I needed to get down quick. Uh, I didn't have any water. Um, I was just trying to shove snow in, trying to get down to our lower camp where we had the fuel. And uh, um, so, yeah, I just sat on my butt and started sliding. And the thing that's crazy is you're the altitude. You're just not thinking. Yeah. And I knew on one side it was, you know, 10,000 foot drop on the other side, it's like 12,000 foot drop and you're it's only about 30 feet wide. And so you're sliding down, going faster and faster, looking at going off either side and never being found again. So, but you know, getting down is all you're thinking about. Yeah, man. So you are the the climate science is obviously also very uh, close to your heart and you adventure to, to gather this data and do these things. Um, tell me your feelings on, um, where we are right now. I, everyone's saying how clean the environment is because of COVID, but certainly not, you know, anywhere near where it needs to be. Well, it, it, I mean, it is kind of amazing because we've seen what happens when you just stop emissions or lower them. And I think I was actually just reading an article where kind of from around the world, um, there's been a, a lot of surprise at just how much of an impact it has made on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, we all expected that, you know, a year with no emissions is going to have a, you know, maybe a 1% increase or, uh, you know, effect, but it's much higher, like an order of magnitude greater impact. Um, the earth really is effective at sequestering carbon if we let it do it. And so one of the kind of really nice things that you've seen coming out of uh, COVID is because a lot of governments want to spend money, they want to stimulate the economies. And a lot of that is really being focused on building the green infrastructure. Um, so things like, I know in London, they're, they, they closed the roads to limit traffic so that people wouldn't be uh, driving during COVID. And now they're just leaving some of them closed and people are walking more, there's less traffic. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of these kind of subtle changes in the way people are, um, kind of interacting with each other because of COVID that are having really positive impact. And another one, for example, is like we're doing right now, rather than me flying there to do a podcast um, and more uh, to the point, 
rather than all of the world leaders flying together to have a conference on uh, climate change and, you know, spewing out hundreds of tons of CO2 to go and have the conference. Yeah. Uh, now everything's being done digitally. And so that's saving a lot of emissions. And so a lot of things have been put in process, not necessarily purposefully, yeah. but COVID really is giving us a chance to rethink the way we interact and uh, deal with the world. And it's giving us a lot of opportunities to apply new funding in ways that potentially can make the world a better place. And so it's really exciting right now to see, to see what potentially can happen. And um, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, the new administration and new Congress deals with these opportunities. And you've, you've talked about, I've heard you talk about going up there year after year and seeing the, the dramatic change to the, the negative side. Are you excited about going back up to a mountain and seeing uh, if it's different uh, after a year later in a positive way? Well, so I can guarantee the mountains aren't different a year later. Right. And the reason for that is because most of the climate change impacts that you're sort of thinking about uh, that we're talking about are related to kind of pollution and things like acid rain and these sorts of things. Um, the, the heating that's gone on has not gone down and the heating is what's driving and the partic particulate matter is what's driving the uh, changes on the glaciers. And so if anything, like this year in the Pacific Northwest, we've had a lot of snow, but it's just, you know, it's five degrees warmer every day than it used to be. And so that cuts a bunch of the snow out and it just can't come back. And so, no, unfortunately, I'd love to see the mountains going back to where they were even five years ago because the, the difference is amazing. Yeah. But no, I don't expect the mountains to be different. It's, uh, it's some of the other kind of low elevation things that are uh, being positively impacted. So you've had to, you have a little bit more about your backstory. You've had to fall back on another one of your degrees to to survive the last year. You're you're a professor at a college, but you're also now you're a public defender. defender. Yeah. So the problem with being a professor who does a lot of research is you're dependent on the research for your salary. And with COVID, you know, there's they just research professors are having a hard time. And um, so yeah, I've basically just put a lot of put that on hold and. Um, uh, when I was uh, in undergrad, I didn't really know what to do coming out because uh, I was interested in the environment. I wanted to make a difference in the world. And uh, I knew from a lot that I'd read that law really, uh, I mean, it, it dictates how society interacts and how the environment is protected and other things. So not knowing what else to do with myself, I just went to law school. <laughs> and um, that law degree is really come in handy with a lot of the conservation work I've done with the uh, climate science program and so forth. And uh, yeah, now I was kind of looking for work and some way to keep busy during COVID. And uh, so I've become a public defender. I feel like I'm still making a difference in a lot of people's lives, trying to make the world a better place and uh, right. uh, staying at home. <laughs> You've told me that I, I want people to know, cause I want to go on these, one of these adventures with you. It's, it seems a lot cheaper than anyone would imagine some of the costs. Like, who can go on these trips? Can anyone email you directly and, and go to a, on a mountain with you? Oh, yeah. No, it's like on the website, climberscience.com. Um, see, I was a climber. So I, I always call myself a dirtbag. I mean, you know, climbers are poor. We don't have a lot of money, especially when I was a climbing student. And so 
everything I've done has always been um, as frugal as possible. I mean, you know, we, we've got tents and like on the expeditions, we've got cooks and everything else. But the key is we don't have a lot of people making a lot of big salaries. Uh-huh. If you go with a guide, you got to pay that guide $600 a day. Right. I'm doing it as a volunteer. So that's $600 a day that you save. Yep. And um, when you're there for 10 days, 30 days, you know, that's thousands and thousands of dollars that aren't. And so that's the difference is we're all volunteers and we're doing this because we want to make the world a better place. And um, that is why it's kind of a great deal for people to come. They can um, save money. If we end up with any money left at the end of the year, what we do is we take that hundred dollars or thousand dollars or whatever it is. And we use it to help uh, some of our local Peruvian students get out into the field, collect data, maintain the databases while we're gone. And we've been really trying to do that during COVID, but it's just, it's been so hard. So, so who, how they find you on climberscience.com. Where are you going next? What, what trips do you have planned uh, coming up? <laughs> so that's a, an incredibly difficult question to answer. I mean, yeah. I really think and would like to believe that we can do a trip in, um, in the summer to like, july to peru um i'm supposed to i'm um was awarded a fulbright and i'm supposed to be in india in the himalayas um as soon as travel begins again so potentially an uh, an indian expedition and a uh, the peru expedition but it i mean it's it's how quickly the uh, vaccine gets out um how i know in peru they're and nepal you know they're their every bit of their income is dependent on tourists. And so they're, you know, begging us to come and uh, begin working again. So, and that's what we, you know, we want to do as well. So I'm hopeful uh, this summer. So, so how irritated is your adventure bug right now? You must be climbing the walls. Well, I'm lucky because I live in an amazing place. Um, Being here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, like I said, I was sea kayaking, uh, yesterday I was, uh, skiing, you know, a few days ago, um, there's rock climbing. If I want to cross to the other side of the Cascades, um, yeah, it, it's been hard and that more than anything, I want to be out there, but at the same time, you know, you just can't in good conscience risk contaminating anyone and spreading a disease. So, um, right now it's been a question of, you know, recovering from injury, uh, recovering from frostbite, yeah. uh, getting strong, getting mentally uh, psyched. And that's the thing, being a, the chair of the Explorers Club for the Pacific Northwest, you know, these are astronauts and, uh, you know, people who really, um, some of you know, Everest climbers, the deepest cavers in the world, and we're all in the same boat. And uh, basically, it's been good to have that community where we're all just uh, recognizing that you know, we don't want to risk anybody else's health, but at the same time, preparing those big adventures for when things do begin to open back up. Land. So, uh, so quickly. Zoom. Where can you? Oh yeah, everywhere. Um, anywhere that sells books. And uh, climberscience.com, what other links, URLs can you put out? How can people reach you? Because I'm sure someone's probably going to see this or hear this and, and want to go on an adventure. So what, what are all the locations? Um, well, the climberscience.com is definitely the best one. I do have a webpage, johnall.com. 
but unfortunately I haven't updated it in two years. I should have done that over COVID. So yeah. So like the, uh, outside magazine articles and all those things, I haven't put any of that stuff on there. So, uh, I do have that, but it's out of date. <laughs> um, climberscience.com, johnall.com, the books on Amazon, the books called ice fall. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are kind of the best places to look. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, I appreciate it so much. I love your story. Um, I, I'm fascinated by it and your, your love for adventure. And uh, I, I hope you get to go back on a mountain soon. I, I'd love to go with you sometime. I, I was about I- to say, I hope you get to come with me too. Yeah, we got to get out there. It, um, I've taken everybody from every walk of life. So there's no one who should feel like they couldn't uh, go. And I know you'd have a blast. So. Right. As I, I just hope my mother's not listening to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm accident prone. So, uh, all right. Well, John, thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you again. And um, I sincerely appreciate it. Yeah. Happy to do it. All Thanks. Right. Take it easy. So there he is, John All, uh, adventurer. Um, yeah, it's it, I, it's funny. I don't, I'm not an outdoorsy camper go climb a mountain kind of guy. But when he talks about these things and when you see the video of it, it does look exciting. It does look like he's uh, doing fun, exciting stuff. Um, but yeah, look him up, uh, johnall.com. Uh, search Dr. John All Everest and you can find this video. I'll also post it in the show notes um, on the blog. I will uh, put it on Instagram and all that stuff. Um, anyway, this has been the Berkeley School of Art. I'm Neil Berkeley. Thanks for listening.